Welcome to Iteration, a weekly podcast about programming, development, and design through the lens of amazing books, chapter by chapter. My name is John, and I'm joined by my good friend, JP. How are you, man? Pretty good, dude. I've uh, I've had the last two weeks off, and so getting ready for this new job that I start tomorrow. On uh, Today is Memorial Day weekend, on time of the recording, so super excited for that. Uh, what's going on in your life, man? I ran a half marathon yesterday, which was my third one. I'm very proud of that, but I am so sore and have the world's worst blister on my foot. I saw that. I saw that on your Instagram story. I just it just <laughs> blows my mind that that that's even like a thing people do. Like 13 miles. I, I mean, when I go to CrossFit and I have to run like a single mile, I bitch and complain about that. So I can't even imagine what running 13 miles would be like in a single run session. I'm trying to work up to do a full marathon. I want to do it before I'm 30, but I'm not sure if that'll happen. I'm running out of time on that one. Because honestly, the half marathon yesterday kind of killed me. My training has been waning because code and work has been so busy. I've only been getting like two runs in a week and that's like not enough. But I still did okay. I didn't do worse than my last runs. I basically exactly matched my last uh, half marathon time. Which was what? Uh, two oh six. So two hours and six minutes for thirteen miles, which I that think works impressive. like roughly like nine forty miles, something like that. Okay, run me through this. No pun intended. But what does it feel like? <laughs> like there has to be different stages of this. Like at mile three, you're like, okay, yeah, this isn't too bad. Mile yeah. five, you're like, you know, still not too for bad. Sure. Mile seven, you're like, I hate my life. Like, what, what's that like? <laughs> what, what's going on through your head while you're running a half marathon? Yeah, that's a good question. Nothing has taught me pacing and consistency like running. And you know, it really brings me back to our example with code, which is like the idea of keeping the lawn and like doing it every right, day. Right, right. And it's like, oh, it's easy. You just do it every single day for 10 years. But it's like, it all depends on training and you just have to be consistent. And like when I started almost two years ago, I could not run two miles. Like I had to like walk in between. I could run a mile, but I couldn't run two. And I remember just like slowly you know, upping the pace and upping the distances over time. But the race specifically, yesterday I kind of fucked up because I started way too fast. I was like <laughs> way overconfident. I had a big cup of cold brew and I started, I was like, <laughs> my average pace was like under eight minute miles for the first two and a half miles. And it's a really good lesson because essentially by mile five, I was just like sucking air to even run like a 10 minute mile. And then so like ever overall, I got like nine thirties or whatever, which is a decent time. I'm not embarrassed by it, but it's not amazing. And I could have done better if I just would have started at a nine minute mile to start and just like been consistent. And it's just all about like even pacing. But yeah, so I basically like I was dying at like mile five and I don't <laughs> usually like listen to headphones during a half marathon. It's a little dangerous as people around you and stuff, but I was like, you know what? And I just like put in headphones and I just put on, I have this playlist, it's pedal to the metal and it's like all this like hardcore hip hop. And then like that actually helped me a lot to like dig in and get music. So I like in the middle of the race, put down music and like finish that way. And it, it helped a lot. Yeah, I was going to say, do you get bored? Because you're just like listening to your own breathing and like your own thoughts. And you're just like, in my opinion, I'd be talking myself out of this. I'd be like, I could just quit right now. I could just stop and I'd be okay. <laughs> it's part of the experience and a part of the like mental training that I'm trying to invest in, to be honest. Like that type of endurance and that type of like mental stability and calm under stress is frankly like works out really well in other ways of my life. And that like, when I have a really tough code problem, I really think of those times and I really think of the consistency and the training and like I know that I'm capable of having a lot of grit and it's like 
half of running for me, it is physical for sure, but a lot of it's like mental and that cathartic, like mental experience. It's almost like meditative and like going through that struggle and that pain and knowing what you're doing and signed up for. I don't know. I really like it and I've gotten a lot out of it. I'm not like trying to get all deep here, but um, <laughs> especially, you know, all of us programmers, like I sit on my butt nine hours a day. So it's good to have two or three nice long runs a week and unplug and not bring a podcast or an audiobook. Sometimes I do, but you know, sometimes I just like try to invest in that mental space and be there. Yeah. I think it's important to like take care of yourself. You know, all you have is your body. So, I mean, you only have your body one time. <laughs> you yeah. might as well take care of it. And it's funny that you mentioned about like pacing and I'm sure this will be a good segue into our actual conversation, but I feel like even in CrossFit sometimes you might have like a 10 minute workout, but I think us as humans have this natural tendency to just come out the gate really, really hot and just like overexert ourselves in the first like 10th of whatever it is that we're doing. And then for the yeah. other nine tenths of it, we're just like, wow, I really should have learned to pace myself a lot better <laughs> or like have, you know, have have the foresight to be able to know that the speed I'm working at now should be the exact same speed that I'm at towards the end and not like thing of averages. I honestly, it comes out so much in web development projects. It's like, I have a month to build this website in the first week, you know, you're spending six hours a day on it and you're all into it. And then like, it burns out super fast. And I think there's something about leveraging the power of the start and like letting that happen a little bit but also like learning to pace. And it's a really good analogy because especially in code, like it's really easy to get excited about the new project and get started and write those first migrations and stuff. But then like the excitement wears off really quickly. And I feel like as humans, we aren't good at consistency or pace at all. And they're both like really good skills to try to develop, to try to like, like leverage the excitement into your pace, like over a long term, it, it's really hard to do. But I feel like in a project, it's a good thing to want to work more on it that day. So if you can like stop early, like if you want to spend eight hours on something, just then four or six and like stop early in the next day, that enthusiasm will really carry over. I think it was Hemingway. He would always, he set a timer for like four hours of writing in the morning. And when it went off, he just lifted his fingers off the typewriter and left it there even if it was in the middle of a word or a sentence. And so then when he went the next day, like he'd be so frustrated and so excited to get right back in and he'd be immediately back in flow. And I've been trying to do that more, just like leave a branch, commit it in progress, sleep on it, walk away. And it really goes a long way to just like get right back into flow. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, All right, enough. I, I, no, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just gonna say, I think that's probably a good segue into our talk because we it's not necessarily about pace and hopefully there is a chapter later on about like pace and burnout. Um, but today's chapter is called Bend or Break, and this is chapter five, where we're gonna be talking about writing flexible code. And so this is especially important in an industry that is changing super fast, especially for us as software engineers. I think in the small 10 minutes of our chit chat, I think you know there's been X amount of JavaScript frameworks that have already popped up. Um, and that, that's my joke about JavaScript frameworks that I have as a note. Uh, okay, but today we're going to largely be talking about how we can decouple our code. Yeah, I love this quote too in the first intro of the chapter. It's quote, life doesn't stand still, neither can the code that we write. In order to keep up with today's near frantic pace of change, we need to make every effort to write code that's loose, as flexible as possible, unquote. So I'm going to go ahead and blow through an overview of the tips we're going to be talking through. And then you can open us up with the first tip and walk us through it. But the tips are this. 
First tip, minimize coupling between modules. Configure, don't integrate. Put abstractions in code, details in metadata. Analyze workflow to improve concurrency. Cool. So you want to walk us through that first tip, JP? Minimize coupling between modules? Yes, yes, I do. But I just want to point out first that it's funny how many adjectives there are in this chapter that describe code. <laughs> Soft, flexible, loose, um, they shy. Never use supple. And I miss that word in domain-driven <laughs> design. Supple. Yeah, there's no supple code, but there is soft and malleable and shy. They even like personify code, which I think is pretty funny. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so tip number 36. Actually, this is the officially past the halfway point because I believe there are 70 tips. So this is tip number 36, minimize coupling between modules. And so the little bit of advice that our authors give us is organize code into modules and limit interaction between them. If one module gets compromised and has to be replaced, the other modules should be able to carry on. And so this is, this just seems like super obvious. Like you don't want um, that many dependencies in between your, in between your modules and in between your classes. Now, obviously we program as, uh, we program in Ruby. And so like there is a natural dependency for a program to work. Like classes do need to talk to each other. Messages do need to be sent. And so there is going to be a coupling, but I think that the point is, is that you don't want modules that should be reusable and like replaceable to be dependent on each other. So it's sort of like when one module, you know, let's say a test suite fails for one module, you don't want like everything else breaking. It should just be like um, isolated to that. So this is the idea of writing shy code, which is sort of like a personification of like, think about like a really shy introverted person. They don't like reveal too much about themselves. They don't really interact with too many other people. So this shy code doesn't really interact with too many other modules. And so this is going back to the idea of the law of Demeter, which is kind of like method chaining, if, if you've ever heard of it. And so like you don't want something that is, you don't want a method call that has like too many dots, basically. So the example I have here is like, let's say you have a method or an object called selection. You don't want to call selection dot get recorder, which is a function, and then call dot get location on that, which calls another function. And then you call like dot get time zone, which yeah. which finally gets your result. That's interesting. I read that section on law of Demeter, or how'd you say it? Demeter? Demeter? I don't know. Demeter, Demeter, tomato, tomato. I think Demeter's probably right. <laughs> and I didn't get it, honestly. I reread it twice and I was like, because it's written in Java and I really don't have that good of a eye for reading other languages, but you describing chaining methods makes a lot of sense. I struggled with this a little bit in practice, like what this looks like. And I remember the book said, like, in practice, what this means is, I think this is the section that was talking about writing service abstractions or object extractions in some ways. Am I right about that or am I wrong about that? No, I think that's right. I don't know. I think it's just weird because it seems like one of those things that I, I have never found myself doing something like this example where I chain. Well, obviously, okay, this is, okay, so this is a lot different than like, let's say you're in Ruby and you like dot down case something and then you dot trim it and then you, and then you, for whatever reason, I don't know, whatever other, like, and then you decide to upcase it. Like that's totally different. Sure. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So just because you have like three or four like periods or whatever in a Ruby chain doesn't necessarily yeah, mean that no. you're. Yeah, I think the, the idea is that these are multiple interdependent methods that rely exactly. on each other's information 
And and I think the takeaway here is in general, just keep your methods short and keep them not calling other types of data and like keep the amount of things your params are passing to methods as low as possible. And I think that's just the takeaways here because if you have more, more params, then you're coupling more data to more things. So try to keep your input simple, your output simple, and your methods nice and short. Would that be true for tips on minimizing coupling in practice? I think so. Yeah. And for example, like you don't want, you don't want your methods to have references to other methods kind of a thing. It's is sort of what it sounds like. I know it just seems so hard because I never do this and I don't want to sound like, yeah, I didn't I never write tightly coupled code, but I just feel like it's, it, it might be one of those things where, um, when you're beginning programming and you just tend to write a ton of imperative code and you have like a method that has 50 lines and it has a bunch of if statements, now, obviously, we don't write code like that anymore, but I feel like this um, tip in general is speaking more towards people who just try to hack things together and don't organize things in an object-oriented way, Sure, perhaps. I mean, something I do is I will use a method within other methods. Is that coupling I want to avoid? No, I don't, I don't think that's what it's talking about. I, I don't see why you shouldn't be able to use a method. In fact, you should be breaking out methods as much as you can. Exactly. Okay, cool. So the next tip is tip 37, configure, don't integrate. And this whole concept totally blew my mind. And it's something that I do, but I didn't realize I do. And now I want to do it way with way, way more intention than I currently do. So basically, this is saying configure, don't integrate means implement technology choices for an application is configuration options, not through integration or engineering. And, you know, the first thing that came to my mind is I work on this project with JP Wiz Tutor, and, you know, it's this idea that you can book a tutor in person, and we've talked about it a million times, but there's this concept of a platform fee. And right now, it lives within this method of, like, tutor payout rate, so this idea that students book tutors on the platform, and then the students pay the tutors, but we take a platform fee. And this platform fee right now is like literally a hard-coded dot two for the point, you know, the 20 percentage point that we take off. And I think it would be way better to have something like some type of configuration file that sets up the initial fees, platform fees, payout method, payout timelines, like a lot of this like gross hard-coded time-based or like small nuance configuration things like platform fees it'd be so nice if i just had like a little yaml file shoved somewhere mm. or helper method shoved somewhere that had all of these platform fees and stuff so that way when i get those emails from this the ceo who's like hey you know can we change our platform fee to 20 percent to 18 percent i'm not like trying to hunt for this method like there's a place to put all of this like business level configuration and logic and I really, really like that idea. And there's a lot of just like hard-coded values stuck around within my business logic that would be really nice, even if it was just a single business logic configuration file that is either some type of a health or method. I feel like using a YAML feels right to me for some reason. Yeah, as soon as you said, you know, stick it in like a YAML file, a little light bulb went off in my head. And I was like, yeah, that's, I think, exactly what this is talking about. So I mean, like, even though you say something like you have a bunch of hard-coded values everywhere. I mean, for all intents and purposes, even if you were to extract some of these values into different variables, it would still live in like the code. And so you would still have to hunt that down. So in a, for all intents and purposes, even if you extract like quote unquote hard coded values into their own variable or even into their own module, it sort of even makes sense to have it as like 
inside of a YAML file where you can just configure these options all in one place and not have to just hunt down like a variable that describes like a percentage of something or something. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of other examples for this. And you know, a lot of the things I thought of is when, at least in Rails land, when you're configuring different types of gems or external services, mm -hmm. oftentimes there's like an initializer or a config file that goes alongside with it. And so it'll be like you're setting up SendGrid and there'll be like a config file that goes along with it. And that type of abstraction could be super helpful for setting up other types of things that you find yourself wanting to be able to change in the future or being unsure of. Now, I wouldn't lean into this too hard and start putting all types of different <laughs> data, but I think something for like your basic defaults or your basic like kind of settings logic that doesn't need a UI, this is a really good place for it. You know, I have certain things like, uh, I'm trying to remember, but there was like the ability to, so we have this concept in the health coaching application I work on of a program has ended or a program has started, but there's this kind of grace period, quote unquote, where if it's starting in three days, you still have access to the program. And if it ended three days ago, you still have access to the program. Right now, that's a hard coded value in both those methods. And I feel like that would be great in like a business logic settings page of like grace period before and after program and just have that there. And all those other types of whatever hard integer values are in my business logic, I'm very tempted to start abstracting them in this type of you know, configuration file of some kind. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not even a, maybe it's not even a YAML file. It could just be like its own module that you, that lives. Totally, yeah. yeah totally. It could just be a PORO or whatever. It, it doesn't really matter the implementation as long as it's well-documented and it's easy to access and it's kind of abstracted away, which kind of leads us really well into the next tip. Yes, yeah, so tip number 38 is put abstractions in code details in metadata. And so I, for this tip, I actually got a little bit lost in the, this idea of metadata. So maybe you can provide a little bit of clarification for that. However, the basic idea of this tip is that you should be programming for the general case and then put the specifics outside of the, what they call the compiled code base. I don't know, I'm getting so hung up on this idea of like a compiled code base because like when you write in Ruby, you don't have to like compile anything. It's just, it just does it like on the fly kind of a thing, you know? Yeah, but you've worked in React Native and in some ways there is compile at least before an actual deployment. Yeah, well, it's not like in Java where you actually have to like compile your program before you can run it. Like you have to compile it manually and then whether or not you get any like compile errors. I don't know. I think anyways, I think I'm getting lost too lost in the details, but the big takeaway I got from this tip and from a lot of the tips actually have the same um, general running theme is that you should be thinking more declaratively and not imperatively. Um, so what this means is you specify what and not how. And so if you still don't understand what the difference between like declarative and imperative programming are, it's basically that when you write something imperatively, think about like a bunch of like if statements where you're like just commanding your program what to do. And so the control flow is very just like if this, if this, then that kind of a thing. Whereas you don't necessarily want to have your program like that because it's really hard to follow um, like the logic when you program like that. So when you when you have methods that are more declarative versus imperative, um, they're more readable. And so that's like one of the big things about like Ruby is that it's known to be a very elegant language. And so it makes it really nice when you write declarative code because you can just read off these method names and all these variable names and know exactly what it's doing and not have to worry about the implementation details. It's all about you know, abstracting the implementation details and having nice clean methods that you can understand what they're doing 
just by reading them. And I always go back to this example of like, it can just be like send email as a method name versus like activate action mailer call. There's, you know what I'm saying? Like there's a big difference yeah, yeah. between send email and something crazy like that. Yeah. I this, this whole concept of putting abstractions in code and details and metadata, the first thing I thought of is I have this big file with, again, within WizTutor, I hate to go back to the old well, <laughs> but there's this big Ruby file that has all of these different templates for automated text responders. So it'll tell you different things about your tutoring session, what's going on. And the actual methods are relatively simple and pretty well written because it's its own class method. And there's these, you know, it's like a text message template method or class. And then it's like dot process and you pass through the session and it processes out these templates. But the actual model file is so clouded by so much text because like there's these, you know, between 60 and 140 character strings that like wrap and it makes everything just look really hard to read and hard to know what's going on because there's all of this like text within the actual model. And the first thought I had with this is again, instead of having, you know, those text values hard coded, possibly have another type of model or configuration file that has these text templates. And so then instead of calling each of these actual quote string interpolation values within my method, I could just say, you know, confirmation text message template, and it would return that and so looking at my actual model, it would be extracted away. I wouldn't have to look at all that specific text and I could understand my model and what it's doing better. And then I'd also get the benefit of being able to easily copy and paste and see all of my text templates that are gonna be set out if these were separated into two different models. And so I think to me, that's the best example I can think of because that was one of the challenges. It's like for your current project, consider how much the application might be moved out of the program itself out into metadata. And so to me, these text templates could really be this abstracted metadata and make this whole model way simpler and cleaner. And I, I can really see the benefits there. And it's a lot related to the last tip of configure don't integrate of like having these two things totally separate, any of those hard coded values in a different place that's a lot more configurable and a lot more discoverable and explicit. Got it. And so what you're saying is that you can actually improve the readability of your code by like taking all these like unnecessary like details. I mean, they're not unnecessary. Obviously, they're important, but like you can abstract that into some other, I don't know, text file or YAML file, or JSON or whatever, whatever it ends up being. And then that module itself becomes a lot more readable as um, as someone who might come to the project two weeks after that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The other thought I had here, and so I'm doing a Greenfield project on an API backend for a current web app I'm working on. And when I read this, my first thought was all of the API response methods to put them into its single config file. So instead of like actually putting the different string API responses right into my different controllers, I could have a single file to manage all these responses oh. and then like be a little bit smart about how I reuse them and have fallback messages. So like if there's a standard success, I can literally just say, you know, return success message from this type of, I haven't built this yet, but my idea mm. is return success message. And then it would automatically interpolate like post the value of that model. And that can do a little bit of meta programming to know what model was edited and return that in this kind of default message returns instead of like having to rewrite these little JSON blocks everywhere all over my, it just doesn't feel right to me. Mm -hmm. I, that was another way that I thought, oh, I could kind of make my success messages 
kind of into metadata when I need custom ones, I can just have them return. Otherwise, I can have these methods that kind of return back automatically based on what just happened in the context of the application. Oh man, okay, yeah. So now that we're talking about this, I just thought of like where we where I could totally use this tip and put it put it into practice is on the WizTutor mobile app. So I'm proud to say that there is error handling, but the problem is is that a lot of the, these error handling messages are hard coded into my Yeah, this is my a perfect actions. example. Yeah, and so that's why I mean like if you were to go through the code base, I mean a lot of the errors look the same like sorry, there it looks like we made a mistake and then there's like an unhappy face emoji, but that string itself is copied and pasted in so many places. And I feel like <laughs> that detail itself can be like extracted out into the metadata. Exactly. And that's what I'm saying with like this API endpoint, because how many times do I return the string value of user updated or, you mm -hmm. know, message sent or these types of like really obvious return messages that can be programmatically generated and abstracted at minimum abstracted into its single file. Mm -hmm. Like you're like you can just say return success message or return fail message on those error messages. And it's like, I don't know why that wasn't obvious to me before, but I feel like that's a really good approach. Totally. All right, so the next tip is analyze workflow to improve concurrency. Do you wanna walk us through this one? Because you have a big block of notes here on it. Yeah, so this was talking about temporal coupling. And this was one of those things, I was like, what the heck is temporal coupling? But what this is talking about is just coupling of time. So typically when we write programs, and this is like, for this was like literally just describing me as a programmer. It's like, you probably think linearly. And I was like, wow, that's very true, I do think, you know, I do think in a linear fashion, um, even though I was just talking about how we should be more declarative and less imperative and imperative is like exactly that. It's thinking imperatively. This happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. However, it would it's a nice like thought experiment to think about like how can we actually decouple our time and order dependencies? So like ask yourself like what can happen concurrently? What can happen at the same time? Surely your program like there are parts of your application where things are happening one after the other, and that's just because of the way that it's written. However, maybe some things can happen at the same time. And so this book gives this really cool example of making a pina colada. Because when I was reading this chapter, I was like, what do they mean time coupling? Like, how, how, can, how can my app possibly be coupled to time and, and the fact that it's written in a linear fashion? Um, so the example to give is like making a pina colada. So they like write the steps of how you make a pina colada. So you open the blender, two, you open the pina. mix. Come on. Pina, you can't pina, say pina, pina, pina. No, dude, I don't, I can't, I don't know, pina colada. My, my, my language is jacked up right now for some reason. Open, well, okay, so these are the steps of making a pina colada. One, you open the blender. Two, you open the pina colada mix. Three, you put the mix in the blender. Or you measure the cup, or you measure one half of white rum. Five, you pour in the rum. Six, you add two cups of ice. Seven, you finally close the blender. Eight, you liquefy for two minutes. Nine, you open the blender. Ten, you get the glasses. Eleven, you get pink umbrellas. And then twelve, you finally serve your delicious pina coladas. But if you think about this as like an algorithm, so this is like, I mean, an algorithm is just a series of steps, right? So this is like the algorithm for making a pina colada. And but think about how like imperative this is. It's literally just steps one through 12 and then you follow them. And that's typically how we think about programming. But if you think about, you know, what steps you can do at the same time, uh, you know, there's actually groups of these that can happen all at the same time, all concurrently. So you can actually open the blender 
open the pina colada mix, measure the 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 white rum, um, get get the glasses and get the pink umbrellas. So some of those steps that actually happen at the end and some of the steps that happen in the middle and in the beginning can all actually happen at the same time. They're not dependent of each other. So you can do all of these at the same time, perhaps if this was like an actual program and this was your algorithm, you know, invoke all those methods all at once maybe. And then, you know, after that happens, there's other things that can happen as another group too. So like steps three, five, and six can happen at the same time. And steps three, five, and six is put the mix in the blender, pour in the rum, and add two cups of ice. So that sort of makes sense, right? Like you can pour all the ingredients in once. You don't need to pour the ice in first and then pour in the rum next. You can like just do that all at the same time. And so this was sort of one of those aha moments I had of like, oh shoot, like maybe I like, I have never even thought about what my program can be doing at the same time. And this was a little bit eye-opening for me. Totally. And to me, what was, first of all, I love the nerdy ass example of this pina colada, but it's a really good illustration because you don't have to put things in the blender in that order. You can throw them all in the blender at the same time. Also like a step of like, get the glass could happen Mm -hmm. before you even put shit in the blender. So like, there's a lot of different ways that that could be processed, but this whole concept of, uh, temporal coupling, temporal coupling is such a big concept. And I think that to only talk about concurrency and what things could be done at the same time undersells it a bit because there is also the concept of different orders of this coupling. And I remember the first version of WizTutor, you couldn't cancel a tutoring session unless it had been confirmed. So like there's a bunch of different states. There's a concept of a requested tutoring session, then a confirmed session, then a started session, then an ended session, then a paid session. Like there's all these different states and I designed it to be so temporally coupled. They had to happen in order. They had to happen this way. And so you literally, you couldn't request it and then cancel it. You had to request it, then confirm it, then you could cancel it, which is just insane. And that makes code super, super brittle that it's interdependent on these different states. If you're like doing something that feels a little state machiney. So I think it's really important to realize when you are doing something, not only that you're probably doing it completely golden path, but you're probably not thinking about concurrency and you're also not thinking about it possibly needing to happen out of order or one of the steps needing to happen on its own. So as much as possible, try to make it so each individual step can happen completely on its own. Now, obviously there's some things that don't work because in the concept of this tutoring session, you can't cancel a tutoring session that hasn't been created yet. So that's just not even possible. And you also, um, you know, you can't confirm a tutoring session that hasn't been created. But what about making a system that allows you to both request and confirm a tutoring session at the same time? Like that would be much less brittle. Or the ability to, you know, we later modified WizTutor to simply be able to start and end a session so you don't have to like start and end a clock. This this timer concept doesn't happen on the server. You just can send me a start time and an end time and we can just process it accordingly depending on that state. So I think it's really important to realize this whole concept of analyze your workflow to improve concurrency. I would expand that to just be like, be careful of temporal coupling and take advantage of things that can be done um, concurrently and don't build shit that's so brittle because it has to go A, B, C, D exactly in that order, which again is going back to this concept of minimizing minimizing coupling, but also like time-based coupling, which is a, I feel like something that's really easy to step in if you don't have the experience. Yeah, I love that. And that's a perfect example. 
I think the big question that you should ask yourself is like, what happens if B happens before A? What happens if D happens before A? Is stuff going to break? And is that the intended functionality? I mean, sometimes like you do need stuff to happen one before the other, but that doesn't mean that everything has to happen one, two, three, four, five. Yeah. The other place I've seen this is in like onboarding wizards I've built. It's easy to think about like, oh, this has to happen before this, but it's like, why? Why can't you make the avatar collection step separate <laughs> from the phone number confirmation step? Like it shouldn't be brittle and follow that flow exactly. There might be a need to do one step independent of anything else or reorder those steps in the future. So like, it just goes back to this concept of like bending or breaking. It's like, you don't wanna break. You wanna be able to bend and have flexible code, minimize that coupling, not only to time, but other interdependencies in general. That's funny. I was literally just about to bring up the idea of like registration wizards. And this also goes back to the tip. What was it? It was like crash early because let's say you have a three step wizard and for whatever reason, each step is on its own page. But like, let's say you do this like eagerly. So you finish step one and you go to the next page, but on the back end, like step one actually fails. All of a sudden, like you want to be able to do step two independent of the fact that step one failed. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, even though step one failed behind the scenes, that doesn't mean step two should fail and that step three should fail just because the first one failed. You should still be able yeah. to complete step two and three, even if step one failed. Yeah. And you don't realize like what your users or your clients are going to need. So for example, I currently have this onboarding form, but I have a pending build that needs to happen right now is the idea that an administrator can set up an account fully except for avatar and SMS confirmation. So like they want the ability to like upload a CSV of a bunch of users and then let those users log in and kind of confirm and manage their accounts from there. But that means they're skipping three out of the five steps of this onboarding wizard I have, and I need to think about how to integrate. And right now, I'm pretty sure they are kind of temporarily coupled, like they have to happen in order. And so I really need to think about refactoring that and make sure that it's not temporarily coupled because the business needs have changed. And if I would have thought of that from day one, this would have been way, way more easy. Yeah, wow, that was, um, these are some good tips today. Absolutely. So I'm going to blow through the tips real quick just to kind of drill them into our brains. Tip 36, minimize coupling between modules. Configure, don't integrate. Put abstractions in code, details, and metadata. 39 is analyze workflow to improve concurrency. And that's the whole temporal coupling issue. So those were the tips for this week. And that was super helpful for me. You want to jump into chips? Ugh, chips. You want to eat chips? You want to go into our picks? Yes, I would love to. So my pick for this week is this really funny die. It's a developer die. And I say die, which is singular for dice, if if that was confusing for anyone who's listening to that. Um, <laughs> it's called the pocket developer die. And it's basically this 20-sided die that has a bunch of typical phrases that you might have found yourself saying. And I think I'm guilty of like 90% of these and I, I saw this on a tweet and I was like, I have to buy this. And so, for example, some of the phrases on this die are uh, non-standard behavior. <laughs> it's a hack. Shouldn't be hard. <laughs> God, that one, that one cuts <laughs> me deep. I've said that Try way too many now. times. I like that one. <laughs> it's not that simple is another one on here. These are great. Where is it? Oh, user error. Yeah. <laughs> Um, where would I ever use this? I don't know. I feel like this would be one of those funny things if someone like, if Justin ever pings me on WizTutor or something like that on Slack, I'll just roll the die and whatever, whatever the response is, <laughs> try it now. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Uh, my pick for this week is App Signal. I'm not paid or anything to uh, do this. I wish we were. Sheesh. About time to get sponsors. But basically, it is track errors, performance, posts, and custom metrics for Ruby and Elixir. So it is basically error and performance monitoring in one product for Ruby and Elixir. In cool. practice, I fully have replaced Rollbar and Scout, and this is a third the cost of each one of those. So I no was way. paying for both Scout at 100 a month and Rollbar for like 60 a month. AppSignal is 20 bucks a month and it's replacing both of those. And I think it's a better interface. I'm liking what? it better already. Wow. Yeah. And Elixir, huh? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so it, it not only does Ruby slash Rails, it does Elixir, but it's been really, really good so far. Great UI. Exactly what I need, which is just like, I need to know when exceptions are thrown. I need to know when warnings are thrown. I need to know when a controller takes too long to respond and what's the issue within that controller. And it lets you kind of dig in your code and see what's going on. Now it's not quite as deep or powerful as Rollbar or Scout, but for me, for the level I'm at, it's like perfect. And I think there's a lot of you out there who don't need something that dramatic and like you're you're way away from, what's that other one, the really big one that people use? I'm trying to remember. But anyway, there's a ton of these different like performance and new relic. That's what I was thinking of. So mm. like you're nowhere near needing new relic at $500 a month or whatever, but it's like you need some error exception monitoring and handling and performance handling. It's been super, super good, easy to integrate. It's been great. So yeah, strong recommend from me. And I am currently counseling. I already canceled Scout and I'm still migrating everything from Rollbar over. So in a couple more days, I'll be off there too, which is going to be nice. Wow, that's impressive. No front end stuff though, however. No, yeah, no front end stuff. I mean, yeah, it's all back end. So you'll know if a user gets a 404 or something like that, but it's mainly for, you know, just error tracking. Yeah, there's no front end. Which, what would that look like? What do you mean by no front end stuff, actually? Now that's that I don't understand. Like, let's say something on the front end, like let's say you did a try catch on the front end or something like oh, that. Oh, like cache. JavaScript errors. Yeah, no, right. it doesn't do any JavaScript handling. Where Rollbar actually did handle my JavaScript errors. So, I don't, luckily I'm right now for my Rails stuff, I'm not, I don't have a ton of JavaScript going on and it's not essential if it fails. I try to make things elegantly degrade when possible. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, you're totally right. If you're JavaScript heavy, this is not the product for you. Rollbar or another one that's even more fitting would be better for you. Anyway, oh, quick follow-up from, do you remember when I was having that weird sketch uh, color issue when it oh, didn't yeah. match in browsers or sketch. So yeah. quick follow up and PSA. There's actually in sketch preferences, you can click, you can pick a color profile. Strongly recommend you do so because otherwise your colors won't look anything like they do on desktop. So, or just Google sketch color profile and it fixes everything and your colors will be sane again. And I'll link both our podcast episode. We talked about that on the screenshots that I had. And I will link also the solution to that because that was driving me absolutely insane and I finally <laughs> found a solution. And it's weird that it doesn't ship by default with color profiles built in. I, I don't understand. It's like configuring your TV or your monitor. For, it's like set up the, the color profile. <laughs> kind of, but it's a little odd to me that like my OS has a color profile picked. And so it's mm. weird to me that Sketch wouldn't see that and use it by default. They just unmanage the colors, which basically means like, oh, we'll just kind of generally get the color right. It's unmanaged profile, which 
it's crazy how different they are to my eye. And I think part of it's because I'm on the newer MacBook display that like has more colors. But anyway, uh-huh. well, congrats to you starting on your new job tomorrow, buddy. It was good catching up. And uh, thank you everyone for listening. And if you would like to support us, please, we would love it if you would tweet at us. You can go to our website, iterationpodcast.com. If you scroll on down to the bottom, you'll see our Twitter handles there. Or you can leave us a review in iTunes or whatever you're using on listening to it. Or just share this podcast with someone else. Just tell them about it. That goes a super long way. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. All right. See you guys.